Welcome to the Area 51 Hockey Podcast. My name is Malcolm Mert, and I'll be hosting today's episode. We are truly honored today to have Brock McGillis with us. He is the first openly gay male in the sport of hockey and advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. Also joining me today is fellow alien and co-host Samantha. We're going to be talking about all things related to the Dan Carcillo lawsuit and the relevant uh, details and around that. So without further ado, Sam, why don't you take it away and jump in with some questions here? Thanks, Malcolm. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Brock. I've been following you along on Twitter for a long time and a huge fan of all the work you do for the LGBTQ plus community and for diversity in sports. Um, for our listeners who are less familiar with your background, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your journey into becoming an advocate from a, from being a professional athlete? Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate share, you sharing your platform with me. Um, so I, I played in the OHL, I played professionally in the States and in Europe. And um, when I was younger, I was supposed to have this high profile career. I was on NHL draft list. I was supposed to be, you know, one of those people that had that linear trajectory towards the NHL where I go, you know, OHL, AHL, NHL and have a career. Um, except I was really struggling. I was struggling with my sexuality. I was struggling with that, mostly due to the language I heard in locker rooms and attitudes and behaviors towards the community. Um, and it made me think I couldn't be myself and play the sport I love. So I started to numb. I numbed with alcohol. Uh, I think I drank every day from the age of 18 to 23. Um, I was constantly injured. I had a season-ending injury every year from 15 until I retired in my late 20s. Uh, I was suicidal, incredibly depressed. And after I retired, I started working with athletes. I'd moved back. I'm originally from Sudbury, Ontario, so Northern Ontario. And um, I moved back there and was working with athletes. And uh, I came to find out that they all knew I was gay. And at that point, I had accepted myself. I was out to my family and friends, but I wasn't out in the hockey world. And especially living up there with a lack of exposure or diversity um, in Northern Ontario, I just thought, I would lose my business and my athletes and everything else. And parents wouldn't want their kids working with me until I found out they all knew. And then I started to realize that they took steps to not only be um, supportive while well, working with me was a sign of support, but they became anti-homophobia and they started to police each other in a sense. And, um, they would stand up to each other when somebody would use homophobic language. So to me, that made me realize that, you know, without even, t I hadn't even told them yet. And they were creating shifts and I was creating a shift in them just by being myself. And they were creating shifts in our, you know, insular little bubble within the hockey world, but also taking it because they are influencers. And some of them were really elite players taking it to their OHL teams or taking it to their, junior teams or AAA teams to their school, their peers and whatnot. And, and we're starting to see a shift. And then um, it made me realize that I could do some things. And then after that, um, there was the incident at Pulse Nightclub. And we're just coming up. We just passed the fourth anniversary of the massacre there where 49 people were murdered just for being queer. And that could have easily been me and my friends in Toronto. And um, those are safe spaces for 
my community, it's one of the only places where you can truly feel like you can love who you love and not be judged for that. And um, around the same time, a hockey association completely, essentially stonewalled me. They blackballed my business. They wouldn't let me work with their players. They found out I was gay. And then when they were approached on it, and this isn't that long ago, this was uh, 2015, 2016-ish, uh, when they were approached on it, they denied knowing that I was gay, even though I found out through my hockey players that everyone knew. And the coach or the president of the association went to some of the coaches I was working with and I was volunteering on about nine staffs. So I spent almost every night at the arena helping for free on top of running a business of training players and whatnot. And the uh, few of the coaches kicked me off their staffs the next day. And between those things, I knew enough was enough and I had to do something. So I contacted a friend of mine who is a journalist in Isopurgy. Um, at the time, she was with Yahoo Sports, and now she's with The Athletic. And I said, I'm coming out. She said, all right, let's do it. So I wrote an article coming out, and, and I didn't know that that would lead to what it's led to, but it's led me to a, a life in public speaking and activism and, and shifting cultures in and outside of the sports landscape. And uh, it's been quite the four years. <laughs> I'm sure when you, you know, you started it like that, you never see how big it can become. And it's uh, incredible. You know, it started small like that. And as you said, you know, it, it just starts to build. And, you know, you're so surprised that I think, uh, you know, I, that's a big difference, uh, especially with everything that's been going on in the States. You know, myself, uh, you know, a straight white man, I've uh, just kind of assumed up until this point that just, you know, not being racist or not being homophobic was enough. But I think that's the, the biggest thing that I've come to realize in the last month or so that that isn't enough, that, you know, you need to be proactive with these things that you have to, you know, stand up for, you know, everyone, uh, you know, all the time and not just pick your battles when it's convenient to you uh, or, you know, when it's trendy, you know, to just, you know, post a generic profile picture or something like that. So uh, it's, it's fantastic, you know, to have people like you. Uh, we're so lucky, and I think, that, you know, the younger generation is so lucky to have role models like yourself uh, who have been so open about your experience. And, you know, I think that's, you know, what matters, right? You know, have someone that you can relate to, someone that you can point to. And I think, you know, once you see that happen, it's, you know, a lot easier for yourself to be, you know, who you are. Uh, you know, uh, I, th I think back to my childhood, I was always a big Dennis Rodman fan. Uh, just caught the 30 for 30 documentary. And, you know, again, that was his whole MO was, you know, the whole point was being original to express himself. And, uh, you know, he's always been one of those advocates. Uh, another well, one, you know, look at you look at Dennis Rodman and and I mean, uh, we can give props to a female or I hate saying that word, sorry, a woman for um, that and Madonna. Yeah, and Madonna influenced him to recognize that he should express himself how he sees and to, like who gives a shit what society thinks like fuck conforming and yeah. am I allowed to swear here? Absolutely. Please. Okay, Absolutely. good. Fucking but fuck conformity and, and that's one of the biggest things is that normal doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. It's an illusion. We're all a bunch of weirdos. And as soon Absolutely. as we embrace that, we'll be less likely to judge somebody else for their weirdness. 
That's exactly it to me is, you know, our uh, diversity is our strength. I think it's so cool that, you know, there are people out there. I uh, I talk about how much I love that there are accountants out there because boy, do I not want to do my taxes and add up all those numbers. Thrilled that there are people opposite of me that, you know, they can do that and I can do this and, you know, we all, we all are better for it. Um, Speaking about diversity, one of the things that I think you've been trying to get involved in is this new Hockey Diversity Alliance started by Evander Kane and Wayne Simmons and Matt Dumba. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, the shift you see coming in the NHL, even just over the last little bit, um, and what we can do to keep pushing that forward. I think that um, what they're doing is important. I, I, um, I've been a little skeptical in calling it um i i don't like that the term diversity is being used when it's all a group of the same people essentially you know it's a group of black men um so that's not diverse um and and that's why i wanted to get involved um with them and i i've been in chats with the person who's behind the scenes working on it um i'm going to i'm in the process of starting something myself a uh, queer hockey alliance right now and um i'm putting that together actually i was doing it before we got on and i'm gonna finish a lot of it after we get off and do something a little more grassroots um i think it's important that we have these uh groups whether you know it's uh for people of color or even if it's each individual minority group, you know, uh, whether it's black players, um, Asian players, or players of any color, any, you know, background, or LGBTQ+, or women in the sport, especially the men's side of the sport, doesn't matter. Um, it, whether they're all individual groups or, or we band together, I think they, they need to happen and they need to be independent bodies from uh, the leagues. And, and otherwise, um, you're easily silenced. And uh, we've seen committees and task forces and everything else, whether it's at the NHL level or at you know minor hockey levels, and they don't work. And they don't work because it's the same people and it's the same insularity and it's the same stuff with a couple of speakers who come from a different walk of life. They don't necessarily come from the sport culture itself and it doesn't have impact. Um, and then you have, uh, and this is no disrespect to cis straight white dudes, but then you have cis straight white dudes trying to put the policy together or they go to a complete outsource like if you look at the trans policy in Ontario after the lawsuit well you had a group like Egal putting it together who has never stepped in an arena necessarily and they don't necessarily understand hockey culture and they had coaches um they wanted to educate coaches and have them educate players and it's like well <laughs> you knew about hockey culture you would understand that the coaches probably need more education or are just like the players because they came from that same culture itself and um so we need people with the lived experience within it to start putting this together and that's why i think those alliances or associations or whatever you want to call them uh, need to exist 
and they need to be there independent from the leagues to hold people accountable and they need to be listened to. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have the same things over and over again. So I think, you know, we're a relatively new podcast. We're coming up on our one year anniversary that we're going to be very proud of. Uh, but, you know, we want to know, you know, as we're learning here, how, where do we start? What are the first things that, you know, fairly small advocates like us can do? Uh, and, you know, what would you say, where do we, you know, are the small building blocks that we can start with that then as, you know, we can kind of hopefully snowball uh, to make sure that we only kind of, you know, progress from here and that we don't backslide when this, you know, doesn't, you know, the, the next news cycle comes through. Uh, you know, what are the tangible actions we can do instead of just kind of the empty words and, you know, reposting the same people and tagging a couple people in it? I think we need to question. I, I think we need to start um, critically thinking about things as a whole, as a collective, whether it's, you know, people like myself who are doing 5,000 media hits or, or a new podcast. Um, I think we need to critically think when we see groups posting uh, their logo as with as a ring, right? When they do a pride logo, or you know, they celebrate Juneteenth, or they do things for minorities like for women, and yet they're not hiring women, or you know, they're not humanizing it and educating uh, people on LGBTQ+, where there's still biases towards uh, all minorities within their culture and, and they haven't really checked them yet, where, you know, their boards and their directors and their owners and the managements of teams are all uh, white people, white men, really, and it hasn't really shifted, but they'll sit there and, and you know, and it's almost like performative allyship. Um, I think we need to critically assess and, and not be given, you know, not, not be, not be content with crumbs and go, well, look, and it's like, no, we want, we don't want to take over. We just want equality. We want opportunity. We want people to feel safe. We want, you know, uh, people to feel welcomed here in our sport and and in society as a whole. And, and I think it's really critical that allies of that movement, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement right now or LGBTQ+, or any other minority group, speaks out on that and doesn't just retweet or go, oh, look how great they are. They said happy pride. You know, it's like, what are you doing for us? What are you doing to make it better? Why is it that um, these gay kids are coming to me within the sport and want to kill themselves? Why is it they're quitting? Why, why, you know, why is this happening now still in 2020 the way it did for me in the early 2000s, 20 years ago, and the way it did for people before that? And why, why don't we have any players in the sport who identify as part of the community on the men's side on the men's side i want to make that you know crystal clear because the women's game is far more progressive and and also um you know just uh, the culture is different um but why is that and and what are you doing to shift it 
And I think we have to genuinely start asking people because uh, when those questions are asked, it's like, well, we created this and I guarantee you after everything that's happening in society right now, we're going to see Hockey Canada and everyone else come out with new task forces and it's the same people on the same task forces and no shifts happen or or committees, um, you know, and it's like, well, what do you hope to accomplish with this? And, And how? I think we have to hold, ask those questions because the way it's currently constructed, it hasn't been asked. Like, like hockey's for everyone month. Everyone, oh, great, look, hey. And it's like, yeah. well, you just lumped the other together and threw, the, threw them a night and celebrated them all on the ice at the same time. And it's like, and you're not even doing the actual legwork to improve the culture for them. But then, hey, you had that night, so you threw some rainbow tape on your stick, therefore everything's great. And it's like it's actually doing worse because now you've you, your performative allyship is uh, makes it seem like it's better than it is. It's like and, and you know, I'm a liberal, but Justin Trudeau taking a knee and, you know, and then there's Singh getting kicked out of parliament last week. And it's like, well, we got to do more. We got to do better. That's, I think, the exact kind of consistency that I'm talking about. You know, words, yeah, I know Sam absolutely loathes the uh, Hockey is for Everyone campaign because it's just, it is literally the most empty words and generic statement. You know, a, a, a very good lawyer came up with that one because you can just say Hockey is for Everyone and pretty much just regurgitate it back. And you don't, the, the words, you know, lose all well, meaning. because And, and with that, I, I actually criticized it in my- planes not long ago i think i referred to it and i should have chosen my words better but i said it was garbage and then i actually referred to it as having the parade before winning the cup that's <laughs> totally for, right that's you're spot on and hurts to say something like that in vancouver <laughs> sorry yeah sorry these parades you talk about trigger uh, <laughs> trigger words yeah. hey hey you had the olympic gold medal there you want yeah, something totally the same that's right? true totally yeah true. no fair enough that was a great day we hold on to that one dearly <laughs> um jumping back to the your new initiative the queer hockey alliance um at a more grassroots level what has your experience with hockey canada been like I've <laughs> sorry, it's a bit of a loaded question. Yeah. Um, I've told them that their videos, because uh, here's the thing with hockey, let's create a video and <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't work. And I told them, and I told them four years ago and I haven't heard from them since. Um, I think I might've insulted them when I said that, you know, if you can't get me as a gay man, who's involved in men's hockey coaching and whatnot to actually sit down and watch the videos you put out. Um, I usually mute them, throw a movie on and answer the questions at the end. And I was very <laughs> honest with high ups at the, at the, at hockey Canada. Then how are you going to get that homophobic coach or that racist coach or that sexist coach or the person who just doesn't give a shit how are you going to get them to engage? Because you haven't gotten me. If you can't get me, who is, you know, has a deep, deep seated, you know, like this is my life. How are you going to get them? 
and it was it fell on you know deaf ears and and same with the ohf i told them for two years um that the trans policy wasn't good and it's going to harm more kids than it helps and and that's not enough when you haven't included anything with race gender uh sexuality um you know or sexual orientation um you can't just make it trans there's nothing you know enough with mental illness there's not enough with disability and and you have to really push all these things and typically every year they come to me and go Brock can you help us set this up and then um disappear by January um two years in a row and lately I've been more critical openly in the media and I got an email this morning so um <laughs> since the, yeah since the Carcillo stuff came out and I've been doing a lot of media about it and actually started before that last week about you know culture and whatnot um so it, it's the same old and, and and until i see you know that they actually want to shift things and I, I don't think they do i i don't think they care i think the sport is too reactionary to the point that they're going to wait until more kids kill themselves to do anything and fortunate for them that kids are leaving the sport instead of killing themselves um but like to me i just look at it and say we're in canada Hockey has the most influence of arguably anything in our culture, let alone any sport. And it could be such an empowerment tool for so many, especially youth and especially disenfranchised youth who are struggling. And, and it could be a place where people feel good. And, you know, like I had one uh, boy come to me not long ago who was cutting himself. And he was cutting himself daily and he found bodybuilding and that became his outlet his resource and now he doesn't cut himself and to me that should be hockey in this country and that should be for everyone because reality is less than one percent of these children who play the sport are going to make the nhl so so it should be for everyone and it should be opened up to everyone they should all feel comfortable in it but you can't just say that and make it happen you can't just put rules in place to make that happen you have to humanize issues and expose them to things and they don't do it and i i think they don't know how but they won't listen to those who do so i think even worse than that uh you know there are people who do have a platform and then use that to completely dismiss and downplay the claims that are made I uh, don't know if you've caught the lovely hit on 650 here, uh, but we have been just completely appalled. Uh, Sam actually, uh, you know, listened to it again this morning and typed it out word for word. And, you know, if you think it sounds bad in audio, it looks even worse written down on paper. And I believe that was Thursday. And here we are talking on Sunday and we have not heard a single peep from either station. Uh, we're, we're, you know, well, how long what does was it said? take to... There was well, a radio segment here by one of the sports talk programs basically going after um, Dan Carcillo and Garrett Taylor's class action and really not separating out the facts and the claim and looking at it, but really just essentially saying, you know, Dan Carcillo is the worst of the worst. He did X, Y, Z. I know the coach who 
is involved in these allegations and the the allegations that were that the guy was actually talking about were the ones made by Garrett Taylor not Dan Carcillo but he just goes straight after Dan and says you know you just have to take all, take anything he says with a grain of salt can't give him any credence because he did all of these things and can I ask who the person was are you allowed to say on there yeah I'll name him it was Andrew Walker Okay, good. I wanted to know that because I'm going to um, listen to it and maybe send a tweet at Walker after we're done here. Um, but here's here's the thing with Dan. And, and yep, Dan has a horrible track record. Um, and typically, myself, somebody like Dan, I wouldn't have a lot of time for. Um, but... The reason I do, and it's not, and and even with his claims, um, even with his track record, I'd probably still have time for his claims because they're real and they're, you know, like they're they're, like it's been fact checked, and you know, so many people have come back and said, yeah, this happened. But on top of that. Dan has sat there and, and compared to most people in the sport of hockey and it's why the culture is the way it is. Dan has actually owned all of his shit. Every single thing Dan's done in his life, he has owned. And when they tried to add extra things on, he said, no, it's not true. And I've had the conversations with him and he said, Brock, like, why would I lie when I said, I've said racist things? Why would I lie about this now? And, and I have a lot of time for somebody who not only owns their shit, because that's the only way we're going to shift, but also is working diligently to um, like make amends for it and, and shift things. And, and it's not about calling particular people out. Like I'm sure Dan has a thousand stories of uh, people he's played with who have done shitty things too, because I played against Dan. And I know all the stories and he didn't even call it the veterans by name who did the things. And he could have, he could have easily called them all out and ruined their lives, but he didn't. And so, I mean, to me, um, to look at somebody's, it, it's like saying, um, well, if a sex worker gets raped, should we not, you know, uh, take it serious? Because, well, look, look what they do for a living. It's like no, they were, still, they, they were still raped, and and regardless of of uh, Dan Carcillo's track record in and and how he was as a human being then, um, he's worked very hard to not only own it but shift who he is, and it, and if people can't see that, that is their own fear of what they've done in their lives and their defense mechanism going up. And not wanting to shift this because they are complicit in the culture that exists in the sport of hockey. And and Andrew Walker was involved in hockey, was he not? At, at, didn't he play junior hockey? And yeah, I'm sure he's done some things that weren't nice. And I don't know for sure and I don't want to, you know, uh, say for sure. So allegedly, I, I would assume that I, I know I did some things that weren't nice. And I've owned that and, and, you know, I was, uh, you know, a womanizer and, and I'm ashamed to admit that, but I was, and, and, uh, I, I think it's, I have to admit those things. I, 
remember bullying a queer kid in high school uh, and I hated myself for it. And uh, to this day, I think about it all the time. And so to dismiss claims based off somebody's track record as a human being is like, is like a, a criminal gets, you know, something happening to them that is illegal and they go to the police. Should the police not do anything? Like, come on, like they, one doesn't equal the other. And, and that is again, hockey culture reaping its ugly head and, and not, um, wanting to look itself in the mirror and see what it truly is. I think you, you nailed it on, on the head. There's, you know, they acknowledge that it exists and they're involved. They have to then acknowledge that they were a part of it and either at least perpetuated or allowed it to happen. And I think as you, you know, people just aren't ready to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I did this, I'm part of the problem. Uh, it's you know, especially when you see those allegations, like, you know, I played some sports and, you know, of course there was some hazing, but it was things like, you know, the rookies carry the bags or they get second set of showers that are cold, not like that. And, but it's you know, hard, but, it's hard to look yourself in the mirror. It's, it, and it's the same thing we're seeing in society right now with, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's difficult to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I, I'm racist. And it's like people will say, yeah, but, you know, I, yeah, but why are they saying it this way? Yeah, but why are they doing this? Or yeah, but they're burning down buildings. Yeah, but. And, and, and I don't want to compare the two because one has been, you know, uh, 400 years of oppression. But it's, it's similar in the sense that it's difficult to look at yourself in the mirror and realize that you're either complicit or you perpetuated this and... Because of all that, you are a part of a systemic problem. And and that's what's happening here. And and I would argue Andrew Walker's history in the sport, he's part of a systemic problem. And and if he's not willing to stand up to shift it, especially somebody with a platform like his, he is the problem. Yeah, that's that was one of the what one of the issues Dan raised yesterday, and unfortunately we were actually supposed to have Dan on, but he's now told us that he can't do media now because he's just filed the claim. Um, but part of the issue that I took with what happened on this radio station with Andrew Walker was that aside from his own experience in the sport, as a member of media with a huge platform, I think there needs to be a huge shift in the way sports are covered. And this was one of the things we talked about with Courtney Cito when she was on a few weeks ago was how we change the way media covers the sport and holding players and coaches and management responsible by asking the tough questions. Um, and it's been disappointing, I think, in the, the last few days to see silence from so many media members about Dan's claims. Well, let me ask you this. And, and I'm working on something, so I'm, I'm going to watch how I word this. If you take a look at who owns the rights to junior hockey and who hasn't said a word. You, you can't help but notice that coincidence because that's, you know, refusing to look in the mirror at a macro level. Not only are we perpetuating responsible for these, we are profiting from this perpetuation, silence and 
it's and, it's disgusting. And no frankly, I think this culture can be shifted, and it wouldn't be that difficult to do. Like I really do, and and that's what bothers me the most is that there's there's and maybe I'm oversimplifying, and it would take some time, but there's there's a path there that I see that's pretty like like easy to do but they just don't want to invest in shifting it if hockey canada or any one of those leagues were to say hire you in the role that kim davis kind of has in the nhl but with kind of more more concrete actions than i think kim davis has been able to do in the nhl what what are kind of the first things you would do in that role i would recognize all the issues I think that is the first step. You need to recognize all the issues in, in, in terms of social issues um, and why they exist. And, and I've already thought this all through and I know them all. Um, um, hockey is incredibly insular. Arguably of all sports, maybe the most insular in the sense of, uh, and let's keep it to male team sports for now. Um, most sports are played at schools. Hockey is not. Even school teams don't play at school. Hockey is played, you're, you're sent off to arenas where you're isolated in arenas. And then um, if we take like elite hockey, let's say you're, you're uh, matched up based off your age group. So from the age of seven through the age of 15, you're with essentially the same kids six nights a week um, for eight or nine months of the year and with the same coaches in a room who came from the same culture. And you're, in, you're, you're together there more than you are with your family than, you know, anywhere else besides maybe school. And even at school, most of them go to school together and hang out with hockey players at school. So you have this insular environment and the way the culture is set up right now they tend to majority come from similar socioeconomic backgrounds or predominantly white they are presumed to be straight and all these things so so let's just take that right so from the age of seven you start talking the same walking the same dressing the same because you're around each other so much and we know in society people become products of their environment so you grow up like that okay then by the time you hit 16, you move away from home. Um, I don't know any other sports where that happens. You know, that young. So you move away from home or as consistently as in hockey. You move away from home, you move to this new community with 22 other hockey players who have moved away from home into this community and you know each other essentially. And now you're together seven days a week and you're at the arena even longer. And then you're traveling around the province or whatnot in northern United States or in the WHL across multiple provinces. And you're together all the time. So once again, that culture of, you know, the language you use, the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you act is all going to, you know, you're going to start to mimic each other. It's normal and, and it's influenced the older players, influence the younger players, just like in minor hockey, uh, a 13 year old influences an 11 year old and if somebody has an older brother that's on the 13 year old team that's gonna and 
the younger kids are hanging out at that house, the way he and his friends interact or the way the younger kids are going to interact and the culture is continuously copied and, and uh, the cycle is vicious. And they're also influenced by the coaches who are, came from that same culture and management who talk the same way, dress the same way, act the same way, etc. Um, then once they hit like junior and whatnot, they go home in their off season and who are they going to hang out with? their buddies they grew up with and all the only people they really spent time with are the hockey players they've hung out with since they were seven and they're going to train for hockey then go back and do it again the next year and it's over and over and over so because of that we recognize that's the reason okay that's the reason why they're not exposed to anything else and and they're taught put your head down worry about hockey you know you're not allowed to have hobbies you're not allowed to you know it's very conformist you're not allowed to enjoy anything else besides hockey. And in locker rooms, all you can talk about are partying girls in hockey when you're, you know, a teenager. Um, so, so you have that aspect. Okay. So, so that's kind of the root reason why this exists. And then you see the, the social issues are the biggest problems and hurdles in hockey culture. Okay. So you recognize each one. And then what do you do? In my opinion, you start off by humanizing them. Um, we're seeing in society right now through the Black Lives Matter movement that um, even hockey players are, are speaking up publicly because something that they kind of knew existed but didn't know because players probably didn't say how racist the sport and culture is to them because they have either conformed or afraid to, you know, well, have conformed in a sense and and don't really speak out on matters because then they are the other and they are seen as different and, and they're already different in the sense that they don't look the same as everyone else and don't have role models in the sport that look like them. So they kind of, you know, have to fly under the radar, same as being gay. But we're seeing in society that when, the, when things have been humanized for these players, they've spoken on it. So you need to humanize it. And I think the easiest way to humanize it these things are taking, uh, because hockey is so insular in nature, you need hockey people who have the lived experience within the sport to humanize it. I, I'm very fortunate that I am masculine presenting, I am cisgender, I'm a white man who happens to be gay that grew up in hockey culture and also worked in hockey culture afterwards. So I'm, I can infiltrate that culture very easily. And so when I go into a room and speak to players, it may have, and it's sad to say, but it's just reality, a little more impact than somebody who's never been in the culture trying to talk about being gay in hockey, <laughs> you know, and, and the impact of being gay in society and the language we use and, and whatnot. Um, so we need people with the lived experience within it who understand it to humanize the issues for the masses within the sport and for the parents and for the coaches because then once it's humanized hockey people are softies they they might not they act like these tough rugged hyper masculine men but they're actually real soft and you can tug at their heartstrings and you can pull at them a little bit and when you do they they become more engaged they'll be willing to learn you just got to teach them why they need to learn. And we haven't done that. So that would be my first step. And then from there, I take 
educators like Courtney, educators like Cheryl McDonald, Mark Willette, Christy Allen. Like there's so many out there who study the different areas within the sport of hockey. And they're not utilized. They're not utilized by the culture. You know, and, and it's so foolish to me that we have people in Canada who study this stuff for a living and are the best in their fields and 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 hockey isn't utilizing them. So from there, after you've humanized the issue, you have academics that can put the programs together in a manner because they've been in the culture that people will relate to it, want to learn it, and be a part of it instead of these stupid videos. Then once we've done that, we have to break the conformity of the sport. So one exercise I do when I go into locker rooms now is after I've humanized through my story, my struggle, and how I empowered myself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I do a, a little breakout where I will try and break the conformity by saying, okay, you tell me that you're brothers. You always use an analogy like you're brothers or you're a family or something like that, and you're going to fight together and you're, you're there for each other. They're your bros. Yet all you're allowed to talk about are women partying in sports. Share something with me you wouldn't typically tell a teammate that you enjoy. So I started thinking about it, and, and I did a podcast with Ben Finelli, and, and Ben's a really insightful guy. You should see, read his story sometime if you don't know him. It's pretty fascinating. Um, and I said, Ben, can you imagine being in a locker room and reading a book for fun? He's like, oh, my God, you'd be harassed. And I'm like, yeah, you'd be the fag. And he goes, yeah. And then I started thinking about Dougie Hamilton. Dougie Hamilton is a six-foot-five defenseman who can skate and he's a right-handed shot that should be every team's dream he is a point per game defenseman in the nhl and he's been traded twice because he can't fit into the culture because instead of going for beers and drinking and partying and all that he enjoys reading he enjoys museums he loves history and art like when did knowledge and and the pursuit of knowledge become a bad thing but it is in this culture, which is one of the issues, which is why everyone's so fearful of allowing people like myself in, allowing the academics in, or allowing anyone else in to shift it, because then where's their place, right? So you need to break down those barriers of culture. So one team I went into, um, I had a player stand up and say, it was a major junior team, a tough guy stood up and said, I love writing poetry. Then another kid stood up and said, if I don't make the NHL, I want to be a zoologist. Then a first-year player literally jumped out of his seat and said, I love animal documentaries. And the coach stood up and said, I love Broadway musicals, and my wife and I go to them every, every summer. Now they're bonding on a deeper level. Now, hopefully, if that continues, at some point a kid can stand up and you know, proudly talk about being Muslim in a locker room then the gay kid could stand up and say, I have a boyfriend, you know, and, and we stop judging people for their differences and recognize we're all different, but we've conformed to a culture. Because I know personally, I can walk into any mall in Canada and I will tell you which kids play hockey. I go to schools. Part of my speaking is going to schools because I'm passionate about 
shifting culture within youth because I think it's the only way we're going to ever fix things. And we saw it with, you know, the Zoomers and Trump's rally the other day. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was phenomenal. But I, I think they're the ones who are going to fix humanity. And I can, I, I actually ask questions. And when I do, I intentionally pick out the kids I know are hockey players. Because I can tell looking at them and I go, you play hockey, right? And they say, yeah. Then from there, we continue to, um, we, we, we have to put in better systems to evaluate coaches. Teachers have to go to school for how long to become a teacher and work with children, but these coaches spend as much, if not more time, and they take a little course online. Like, really? And they're influencing society and, and our future generations? Um, we have to invest more in, in, in the system we put in place or evaluating them. We should have people that are third party on each team to, to ensure that the, nothing is done out of line with the coaches and we have to continue engaging with them and teaching them because it's going to be more difficult for them because they're older and they've been ingrained in this culture or in this culture longer it's ingrained in them. Then after that, after that, put rules in. After that, put punishments in. And part of the punishment, yeah, suspension's fine, whatever. It's not going to do anything. All you're doing is telling them to shut up, and so it won't be as overt. But it's still going to exist. The problems will still exist. At that point, they should have to sit down with people, either within the culture or the academics, and, and, and do deeper dives into why this is happening, and sit down with the parents, and, and find out why they're making comments like this. Like, like I saw a video recently of Tony D'Angelo and, and how his father, you know, um, said, yeah, I say the same stuff. Well, we, sh we should, you know, sit down and, and help educate them so this doesn't exist any longer instead of, you know, just, you know, five-game suspension and then they're back and all of a sudden they're saying worse things. Or, for that matter, most of the time the suspensions aren't even called because referees and officials don't want to ruin the kid's career and don't want to get this kid labeled and, and, or they may be homophobic, racist, sexist themselves. So they don't call it. And the, so the whole culture has to be reformed. And I think those are the steps in reforming it. And, and if you do punishment first, which has been done or what they, any leagues will argue they do, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. This, this is. I, I've been looking at this every day for four years, and this is the only path I see to shifting it. And it seems it's doable. Why wouldn't it be? They charge thousands and thousands of dollars. Like you can't put money towards this and investing in in people's futures. That was. That made a lot of sense to me. That was really powerful. Thanks, Pro Brock. Thank you. It's been tremendously valuable having you on. I, uh, I hope uh, we get as many you know, viewers for this one as possible because your message is important. And I don't think that we have heard you know, enough from people like yourself uh, who are so willing to you know, express themselves and you know, tell your side of the story that you know, clearly, as we've been talking about, doesn't get expressed enough. So uh, I know we want to do a, a little uh, rapid fire questions uh, with you as you said, yeah. get to know you a little bit more. Uh, but before we do that, we'd love to give our guests an opportunity to, you know, just uh, have the last word. Uh, so is there anything else that you want to mention uh, before we jump into that shootout segment? 
I really hope that at some point the, the people in charge recognize this and, and actually reach out to genuinely create a shift in the culture because hockey is a great game and I love hockey and, and people will accuse me all the time of wanting to, you know, burn it down. And I don't, I don't at all. I don't even want to burn down the people because I don't fault anyone within the sport because they, this is, they are a product of the environment. We, we just have to educate and engage and shift. Thank you. Well said. So, uh, fun questions here. Uh, real easy peasy, I think. Uh, but as you said, you know, always great to, to get you to know you a little bit more so people can, you know, see you beyond just, you know, the advocate and, uh, you know, the quick bio and, and stuff that you can find with a quick Google search. Uh, so hopefully here's some just uh, fun, light stuff that uh, yeah. we can find out about you. Uh, easy first one for you. What is your favorite pizza? Pizza? Like what, toppings? Yeah. Well, you know, if you have a, a you know, thin crust deep dish, if you have, um, a, you know, a, you know, particular restaurants. There's um, so I'm on TV a lot and I have a show now. So I've been eating cauliflower crust pizza for the longest time. <laughs> to, uh, yeah. And I'm ashamed to admit that publicly. Um, <laughs> you but, specified that you wanted to talk about the type of pizza. So you the, wanted to bring that up. Come on. There's, there's <laughs> a good place in Toronto called North uh, Brooklyn, uh, North of Brooklyn. And I like that one. If I'm going to have a, a cheat day, I'll hit that one up. It's pretty good. I I'm pretty easy though. Like, cheese pepperoni or like I, I don't know someplace called canadian like stuff like that or supreme like whatever they're classics for a reason right yeah yeah what is your favorite drink oh gin <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, just give me a bottle of gin and i'm <laughs> i'm happy and especially right now with everything going on just just keep refilling my glass <laughs> <laughs> one more please what is your favorite tv show of all time all time. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to go with RuPaul's Drag Race. Nice. Well, yeah. perfect transitional question then here. Uh, Nikki, a uh, friend of the show, asked to pick the top three on Drag Race All-Stars. And uh, who should we watch out for in a Canadian version? So on All-Stars, my top three, I'm going to go with Shea Coulee, Miss Cracker, Juju B, although my favorite person is probably Mayhem Miller. Um, and I just know a few, like some spoilers. So, um, <laughs> no spoilers, not, no spoilers. Not all of them, but I know a couple, so I'm not going to pick Mayhem to go all the way. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I'm going to pick as my top three. And what was nice. in Canada's Drag Race? Um, Tainomi Banks, a dear friend of mine, uh, love Tainomi. I uh, is arguably one of the most talented queens I've ever met. Um, uh, Juicebox, another friend of mine, actually just ran a digital drag show last week. Uh, Brooklyn Heights and I, who's the host of Canada's Drag Race, hosted this to raise money for uh, queer COVID relief. And we raised close to $12,000 with a drag show. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And um, Juicebox has some of the best looks. Boa's hilarious and comes in as 
a whole hockey get up um, for drag race. Um, Priyanka has one of the best personalities I've ever seen. Super charismatic. So watch out for them. Very nice. Yeah. I, oh, uh, uh, and next season there's my favorite Vancouver queen is an on season one. I don't know if she um, applied or not, but uh Geometric. Watch out for Geometric. Or if you're in Vancouver, go see Geometric. She's super talented. Very nice. Uh, what is your favorite song? Currently or all time? Oh, let's go all time. Oh, shit. <laughs> That's tough. Um, I really liked a bunch of early Kanye stuff. Um, uh, not so much Kanye now. But um, <laughs> early Kanye stuff, really, really, uh, I really enjoyed. And early Gaga. Yeah. So I'll great. go anything early Kanye, anything early Gaga. Good answer. Uh, cheap plug for us. What's your favorite podcast? Um, yeah, Area 51. How did you get Boom. your name? Like, why? <laughs> Area 51. You know what? I, unfortunately, I guess that's going to have to be a question for Sean. I actually think it's because Elias Pettersson's nickname is The Alien. Uh, oh, that makes and sense. So, Does yeah. he have a personality? Oh, like you wouldn't believe. He has yeah. a resting bitch face. It's yeah, perfect. He's, he's slowly becoming like one of my favorite people in hockey. I want to meet him sometime. Say, he's that able would be to awesome. say a lot with just a look. His, his responses like to some... I think he has a wicked dry sense of humor. Like, yeah, I like that. Out every so often, and you're like, "Did you mean to be funny?" And you're like, "I think he did." I want to. I want to meet him because I I feel like I'd enjoy his humor and personality. Yeah, I think that would he's be definitely... awesome to get you guys on something together. Oh my and god, think, let's do it. As we see more and more, you know, his you know ability to you know speak English a little bit more comfortably, and you know just get to the use of the media and obviously all the attention that he's getting as he's you know jettisoned into a superstar very very quickly. Uh, you know, we start we're going to start seeing that a little bit more and more. Uh, so the last question I have for you, and you know, this is uh, stealing words right out of your mouth, but I think it'd be cool to you know tell us one thing about yourself that we don't know already. I, um, I put a lot of stuff out there, so it's hard to, um, <laughs> I come off as I have this all together a lot and, and I speak in the media and I speak, you know, relatively not forcefully, but, uh, with some conviction, um, and a lot of the time in this, and, and I recently started to allude to it. Um, in this movement, especially being, you know, queer in men's hockey, I feel very alone in shifting it. And, and it's felt like an uphill battle by myself where every league and organization hates me along the way and tells me they hate me and the death threats and everything else from uh, fans and whatnot. So it's, it's, partially why I'm putting together that alliance um, because I, I, I can't do it alone. And I've, I've been trying to, and it just like eats at me. And, and I have this really bizarre relationship with hockey that it, it really stings me. So um, that's something people don't really know. 
Um, but yeah, for everything else, like from what I enjoy doing to, uh, I mean, I'm a gym rat, like I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I put out my mental illnesses. I put out my gym obsessions. I put out the fact I drink gin. I don't know. I, I, my relationships out there, like everything I do, my obsession with drag. I mean, I have a, a digital show with RuPaul's Drag Race in the U.S. So um, everything I do is kind of out there, and except for that, I, I hide some of my emotions. Well, that's awesome, and you know, again, I uh, just want to repeat that anything that we can do here in Area 51, we would love to be, you know, a part of that alliance. Uh, you know, looking to grow. Uh, you know, Thank we you. Love, again that we have Sam on this show uh, that you know again, demonstrate some actual diversity instead of just saying it, because, uh, you know, she has a, a real passion and real conviction uh, and is damn good on Twitter. Uh, so we, she is quite a weapon, and i uh, putting words in her mouth. She is uh, at your disposal whenever you need. And again, we, uh, we are here too uh, for, honestly, whatever we can do, because, you know, we don't want to remain silent and just assume our complicity is good enough. Uh, we want to be, you know, passionate advocates for you. So Thank it's been you. an honor to have you on today. Uh, okay. This has been a very powerful episode and, and we're really proud to be a part of it. Well, thank you. And thank you for, you know, uh, sharing your platform with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Any, anything you need going forward, Brock, you let us know. And we're always happy to have you on and help however we can. I appreciate that. Uh, as soon as I'm, I'm organizing right now because the outpouring after I, I posted a random tweet on a Tuesday night that I was going to start an alliance of some sort or some uh, association and uh, I received like hundreds of messages so it's uh, it was Love like whoa yeah it's phenomenal it's exciting but now I'm I'm like okay I better get organized quick so <laughs> I'm doing that right now and and I'll make it happen so and awesome. we'll shift culture and we'll make kids fall in love with the sport yeah, we're going to do this. All right, everybody, welcome to a kind of an extra segment that we're adding into this interview. We, we find that this episode is just so powerful and it addresses so many things that need to be addressed right now. And it's so timely um, that we wanted to uh, kind of delve a little bit deeper into that. Um, we have Sam with us that uh, is open to taking a couple questions um, and talking about it from just purely a legal standpoint as far as what it means for it to be a class action lawsuit, some of the terminology around that. Uh, and then also uh, just we have Malcolm and, and Brad with us as well so we can kind of chime in on um, on just the situation as a whole right now and, and our thoughts on it as well. Um, we did get one question, Sam, and that was from Tessa on Twitter. Did you want to just kind of jump into what that question was and, and answer that? Um, I think, well, I think Tessa had two questions. She wanted to know what, what it means for a claim or a province to be an opt-out jurisdiction. And also she wanted to know, um, about how payouts to class members work. Essentially, is there a difference if a guy's played one game versus a player who played four years? Um, so I think I'll cover those kind of as we go through rather than sure. jumping into it off the top. Um, how about in layman's terms, Sam? Because, you know, I think 
all yeah. of us really with very rare exception really know the legal termination and jargon and, and things that are used and i know i often look at a, a legal document and i'm just perplexed and immediately forward yeah. it on to you and say <laughs> you know tell me what this really means uh so why don't you just kind of layman's terms explain you know everything that happened with the, the lawsuit and uh you know just so everyone has a, a better kind of simple grasp of it yeah um so to start I, this is not legal advice or a legal opinion. I'm just going to try to outline kind of the bare basics of how this works. Um, it's a class action filed in Ontario, which means it's a civil claim, not a criminal claim. So for people who are talking about it in terms of guilt or innocence, that's not really relevant here. It's just whether or not the defendants are financially and legally responsible for the things that um the class members say they did. Um, in this case, Dan Carcillo and Garrett Taylor are what we call representative plaintiffs. In a class action, you pick a representative who can basically check off all the requirements for a particular class. Um, and the point of a class action is to just kind of simplify the proceedings. It's where there are a lot of potential plaintiffs and all of their claims are very factually similar and would fulfill the same legal tests. Um, and those are called common issues. What happens is you file this claim and kind of the basic steps are in a class action, you would go to a certification hearing. And a certification hearing is where the court looks at the claims looks at the defendant's responses and says, yes, there are enough common issues here that we should treat all 20,000 of these people in the same way. Or they look at it and say, there, there aren't enough common issues. Each of you is going to have to bring your own individual claim against the CHL and all the various teams. So that's kind of the purpose of a class proceeding. Um, Tessa's question about whether or not it makes a difference in the final payout if you've played one game versus five games. In this case, the class is defined in the action as all former and current players who play or played in any of the leagues while they were under the age of 18. So there's no limit or number or minimum number of games you had to have played. It's at anyone who played. So on my reading of it, I would interpret that as anyone who played. It doesn't really matter how long you played. Um, that's obviously an avenue for the defendants to say, you know, that's not really a common issue then. Um, payments out to class members once the matter is resolved is pretty complicated. It's usually most class actions tend to settle. Um, they don't really go to a full trial. You usually get to either the certification hearing and then after that, there are some motions and then there's a negotiation and the party settle. It very rarely goes to trial. Um, and so the payment out will depend on kind of the terms of settlement. Um, whatever the parties agree on, the court has to approve as being in the best interest of the class. And so they'll look at what that proposal is. And that will include a mechanism that all the parties agree to to pay out the various um, class members. So that's kind of the whole thing in a nutshell in terms of process. Um, for the question about whether it's an opt-out jurisdiction, um, that's like actually super legal and I'm surprised she asked. Um, 
in Canada, each of the provinces have different rules and laws about how class actions work. Um, Ontario is an opt-out jurisdiction, and it means that anyone who falls within the definition of what the class is, is automatically a member once it's certified, unless they don't want to be, and then they, they basically have to step up and say, I don't want to be in this class action. I don't want to be bound by the findings here. I might want to sue them separately myself. Mm. Uh, and in Ontario, that applies to both people who live in Ontario and people who are non-residents of Ontario. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it was filed there, because you have players kind of across Canada. Um, in BC, for example, BC is also kind of opt-out, but it's a hybrid model. BC is opt-out if you are a BC resident. So if you live here, you would automatically be in the class. But if you lived in a different province and the claim was filed here, you would have to opt in, which means you would have to essentially notify the lawyers that you want you to want be. to be a part of it yeah right. so this is more this is this makes sense for this claim given what the demographics would be that's that's actually really interesting because i wanted to know personally just the why it's so important that it needed to be a class action lawsuit uh filed in ontario um and and being that it is a nationwide issue, it is something that there are teams in every province and uh, players that have been all over the country and come from all over the country. Uh, so just to know the and understand the relevance of it being from Ontario that it was filed in um, and, and not just being that it's kind of the biggest area or the most highly <laughs> um, populated uh, area or where the OHL being one of the biggest leagues in the in the CHL are located. So that's awesome. Um, I mean, I think we can all agree, obviously, this is very early on uh, in the proceedings for uh, for this action, this class action lawsuit. Uh, there is a long way to go for it to um, to actually have a solution to it. So for anybody to use whatever platform they have to to say that there is uh, to have any sort of decision on it or opinion on which way it'll go um, is wildly inappropriate and irresponsible. So, I mean, for us, we're talking about it purely from a factual standpoint here, what we do know, uh, what information we have, um, and then basing it off of those things rather than uh, us perhaps knowing somebody that's uh, been abused or knowing somebody that uh, is an alleged abuser and then making our judgment off of something like that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on, sorry, uh, just real quick was we had an interview with Dr. Zito a little while ago, and I just think that this one in particular um, answer that she gave us is incredibly relevant here, that people can be more than just one box that we put them in. Um, so somebody can be a good person, um, that you know them, you can have good interactions with them. Uh, you could have, um, they could be a good father, a good parent, good, uh, good neighbor. Uh, they could even be anti-racist or anti-misogynistic or any of those things and also be an abuser in another sense, um, or, um, wrong in another sense. And, 
and we can't just put one definition to people. So in the case with Coach Dick, perhaps he was, perhaps he is a good neighbor, perhaps he's a good coach, perhaps he's a good other things, but he can also be an abusive person and somebody that you shouldn't have around your children. Both can be true. Um, and so before we jump in and say, oh, my, because of my personal interactions with them or because of my perception of them, um, I don't think that they would do that. That's not in their character. We have to, we have to understand that people have different interactions with people um, and, and not devalue or discredit somebody else's um, experience with, with an individual based off of our own personal experience. I think you touched on something that was, you know, a great point that uh, Brock McGillis made in the, the interview that you all just heard. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to look in the mirror and acknowledge these things because at some level, especially if you do have a platform, it's, you know, you ultimately have to take some accountability for the things that have happened uh, because you can't separate yourself and, the you know, the bad things that have happened and accept the good. And I think that's very difficult for people. And that's what we're seeing a lot of, you know, whether it be this specific topic or hockey or, you know, all the events that are relevantly happening around the world right now. And I think that's, you know, a part of the problem. And, and one of the reasons that we're seeing these people, you know, refuse to accept uh, that these things can possibly happen because it reflects so poorly on them. And it's uncomfortable to know that you, your silence uh, is a complicity and that, you know, by not, you know, by turning a blind eye, uh, by, you know, wanting to believe only the good and not the bad, that you have become part of the problem yourself. And I think that's a, a very difficult thing for, you know, anyone to do. And it's something that, you know, I personally have been, you know, reconciling a lot in these, you know, this last month, uh, that you know, simply being silent and not, you know, uh, you know, being a, a homophobic or, you know, racist person myself was enough. Uh, and I think that's the, the change that we all need to make. And, you know, acknowledge that these conversations and these things are difficult to do. It's not like you can just, you know, snap your fingers and, and all of a sudden, but it's, you know, acknowledging uh, that these things do happen. Uh, and, you know, you have to be an advocate for them to stop uh, and not just remain silent. I think one thing, I think those are important points um, that just not doing it yourself isn't enough and being actively anti-racist, anti-homophobic, and being an active ally in every way you can is important. I think there's a distinction here um, that has been kind of lost in the discussion around the whole I stand with Michael Dick thing. And to be totally clear, um, these are everything raised in this is an unproven allegation. That's the point of a court process. Um, unlike telling your story on social media or you know, I think people took issues with Dan Crisillo having publicly gone after the Sutters or the Red Deer Rebels. This is very different from that. This isn't some, some guy going onto Twitter and saying, here's my 60 tweet thread telling you my story on social media. You can believe me or not. This is like this is a formal legal process. Litigation is expensive. It is stressful. Like no one does it for fun. Um, despite what you see on TV, it's it's not a fun process for anyone. Um, and the process requires that they make these claims and the defendants will get a chance to make their case. And it comes down to the judge looking at the evidence and who can make out either their claims or their defense. 
in determining liability. It's not just, oh, I'm going to point my finger at every single person I can and take them down. Like that's simply not how the process works. The other part of it is that there's been a lot made about the coaches being taken down in this. And I think anyone who says that hasn't bothered to read the claim. It's a 46 page legal document. It names, I don't, I don't even know. It names three cover pages of defendants. There is not a single personal defendant named in this. None of the coaches are personally named. None of the players are personally named as defendants. It's all the three leagues, the CHL, the three sub leagues, and every single team and all the owners of the teams, the corporate owners. There aren't any coaches, staff, people named who are going to be liable and said to be, oh, you're an abuser. I think it's important to look at what the claim is, which is the base of the claim, if you read it, is one for systemic negligence. And that allegation means that they think the league has been set up in a way to perpetuate these kinds of abusive behaviors. It actually acknowledges, it says that the people who have committed the abuse, as it's defined in the claim, include the players, coaches, staff. But it doesn't actually say that any of them are liable. It basically says the league has created a system where those things, where the league owes the players a duty, and they've created an environment where they turn the players and the coaches and all those other people into abusers of each other. And I think that's a very important distinction because he, there's no player who is signing on to this as a plaintiff who's saying that they're innocent. Like that's that's mm-hmm. not a concept in this case. That's <clears throat> the whole point is that there's something wrong with the system. And something that Brock McGillis said earlier really resonated with me. And he said he takes issue with people who say that he or Dan Crisillo want to burn the system down. He said he doesn't want to burn it down. He actually loves the sport. What he wants is for people to be able to love the sport and not grow to hate it or want to leave it. He And he actually said, he said, I don't fault anyone, including coaches within the sport, because every single person is a product of their environment. And the problem is with the environment. That's powerful. And, yeah. And I think if you think about it from that sense, I have a very hard time trying to discredit Dan Carcillo or any other player who's willing to come out and say, these are the things I suffered. This is what I ended up doing and doing the same thing to other people that I suffered. The league should be responsible for that and they should change that. Yeah. No, I think that's really well put. Like, was there anything else that you guys wanted to add to that or to, to the discussion here? No. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think regardless of the outcome of the lawsuit, just Dan Carcel speaking up is going to make some uh, great amount of change. And given like specific examples and stuff in the public eye, I think that does make a big difference for junior clubs going forward. Because again, these are like young kids moving away from home. They're by themselves and they're exposed, right? So like uh, sometimes team bonding is passed off or is used as an excuse to get away with this stuff. But like there's a difference between having a beer with the boys and, uh, like forcing them to do cocaine or whatever right so yeah yeah Yeah. oh wide difference (laughs) yeah go ahead i think you know another thing is hopefully you know everyone including us can rally behind you know guys like brock mcgillis and 
uh, you know, now that we have leaders like that who are so open and so willing to, you know, take accountability for their complicity in it and, you know, fight for change and have dedicated, you know, now their entire lives for this cause will make, you know, this next generation, you know, make it so different to have, you know, an ally that has been so open, uh, who, you know, is willing to talk about those issues uh, and hopefully make everything seem a little bit more normal uh, that, you know, you can feel like you can express yourself in these ways and, you know, you don't have just those three talk topics to talk about. Uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, with what he's going to be doing, you know, of course, we have the Hockey Alliance uh, that we've already had uh, formed. You know, hopefully the diversity can continue to grow uh, so we can you know, actually have actions behind those instead of just the empty words. Uh, you know, we, we ranted a little bit about how empty, you know, the statement hockey is for everyone is. Uh, and, you know, clearly it's just said and then forgotten about. I haven't seen any, you know, concrete action or people take respons taking responsibility for that. Uh, you know, Brock talked about his frustrations with those videos that, you know, clearly help no one. And he was saying, you know, <laughs> I, I don't even watch them. So, you know, how can you expect people who are actually part of the problem to watch those? Because, you know, they're so cringeworthy. You, you know, you know it's, it's just such a shameless attempt to, again, just virtue signal and say, look, look, we're, we put out this video, you know, it's our thoughts and prayers, and then they continue doing exactly what they've been doing and then turn a blind eye. And people, you know, the, the people with the platform, the problem is, you know, who who's listening to that? L look at the audiences that they have and the people that they reach in, and they're not expecting that. They tune in for hockey takes, not, you know, yeah. your personal vendetta against a player that you clearly don't get along with and clearly aren't you know, even willing to listen to if, you know, you, you're, you block them when they come out with accusations like this. Uh, you know, it's, it's cowardly as far as I'm concerned uh, to, to do something like that. And you've seen the repercussions on Twitter, people blindly taking, you know, that side because they've supported their hockey takes and, you know, using that halo effect to assume that because they agree with their hockey takes that, well, I guess I need to, you know, back this play blindly too. And those people have followings, too, that then spread that around and around. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important to stand up and, and point out and, you know, stick to the facts, stick to what we can see and be consistent in that. And don't let people, you know, be unchecked uh, when they're, you know, using these platforms and, and call these people out. I think that's, you know, an important thing. And I think, you know, something that we're proud to be doing here at Area 51 uh, instead of, you know, as I said, just letting these things continue and pretending they don't happen and, you know, virtue signal with posts that are empty words with absolutely no action backing it up, uh, you know, inconsistencies and, you know, again, perpetuating the problem with your silence. So I think uh, I think this has been, you know, useful and fantastic, and I hope everyone enjoyed the listen. Uh, you know, absolutely get uh, make sure that you're following Brock McGillis he has some exciting stuff coming out and, you know, support him, uh, do everything that you can, uh, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your family, make sure that they're, you know, listening and, you know, with ears open and explain, you know, the things that it, it's going to be uncomfortable. It, you know, you, you're not going to be, you know, if you're, you're sitting back and you're comfortable, you're clearly not listening to the words that are said in this episode. So, uh, you know, put down your phones, really give this one a listen and, you know, be willing to look yourself in the mirror and accept that, you know, your silence has, you know, made you part of the problem. 
but just because you know everyone has been part of the problem no one has been perfect in this uh so you know again accept that you can move forward now and you know start to take some responsibility because no one has done a good enough job of that so everyone can improve well and i i i like that a lot I, one of the things that has kind of jumped out to me too um is people saying it's a hockey debate show it was a hot take there is no hot takes when it comes to stuff like this this isn't a hockey debate um yeah. this is this is a hockey adjacent uh issue it is something that happens around the game um and we all love hockey and we all want it to be something that everybody can enjoy everybody can feel safe to uh consume um and participate in um and be a part of so when when i see stuff like that uh it's bothersome um uh, and i i put out and this is again going back to andrew walker uh in particular and um seeing people say well when have you ever seen him apologize or take back a take this is not a take and i do expect him to come out and say sorry at some point i i do think that he owes uh people that listen to that an apology uh, I think he owes it to himself to, uh, to come out um, and say sorry and reala- and educate himself on, on what was said wrong and, and why it was wrong and what he needs to do uh, better. I have full faith that he is capable of doing that. Um, I would like to see it. Um, and then, like, I saw this thing. It was like, well, that's why, like, sports shows are built on hot takes or hockey takes and not backing down from them and and to me if you're wrong you're wrong own up to it right and yeah and that's one of the things to me like if i came out on a previous episode and said something stupid i would want myself to come on later and address it and say i was wrong um and not and not just be like, well, no, I was right in this sense over here and and try to find different ways to defend it. Even more so now with something like this uh, that's not hockey related all that much. Um, there, I mean, look around. There's so much happening. There's so much change happening right now. Um, and you want to be on the right side of, of something, right? Like, wh- why would you ever put yourself in the same position to to be defending uh, abusers or anything like that right like why would you even line yourself up to potentially be on that side i just i don't understand it um i'm frustrated by it i'm sure a lot of people are um and to me it's just so not hockey it's not a hockey take we got to stop treating it like it's a hockey take it's not there's no takes there's there's it's a it's a legal action that is happening. It, we will see it play out. We will see what happens out of it. But there is no takes as far as who's right, who's wrong, what should have been done. Like, I don't know how to further explain that. <laughs> I just really don't. I think. Listen, I've gone I've gone after Andrew Walker pretty hard on Twitter. I think everybody knows that. Um, I've been told that what I what I typed or excerpted from what he said is unfair. Um, People have said, why do you think he should be fired? I've actually never once said he should be fired. And I want to be clear about that. I actually don't think he should be fired. I think that another thing that Brock brought up in the interview earlier was 
in the context of grassroots hockey, he said he doesn't see the value in necessarily suspending players when they make a homophobic comment. You're basically just telling them to shut up and just don't say it next time. You're not actually helping them learn anything. He said what he would do is when that happens, you speak to the parents, you speak to the players, and you educate them so that you actually affect a change. And that's that was the point of what I was saying on Twitter is that I believe Andrew, and I'm willing to take him at face value when he says he agrees that there are issues and that they need to be fixed and that you know, that that's not what he's taking issue with. What he's taking issue with is Dan Carcillo. But I think what the disconnect there is, is that it was just handled and said in such an inflammatory and inappropriate way that even if your intention was not to discredit the other victims or survivors and your intention wasn't to do that, the effect of what you say is to do that. And that's a problem. And I think that for something like this, media members just need more training about how you actually discuss that and how you handle it in a way that's respectful to all of the parties. Well, and I could see it being uncomfortable, right? Like they're used to talking about sports. They're not used to talking about legal action, right? And so when something like that comes up, something as horrific to read as as what we've had, it is uncomfortable. And it is out of your element, totally. And I get that. But that's where the educating yourself, doing your due diligence to know what you're speaking on before you speak on it, that all comes in. And, and until you do those things, you shouldn't make a comment on it because you just simply don't know. And and I, like I've we've gone to bat over this lots over the last weekend here. And at no point have any of us said that he should lose his job or that any sort of disciplinary action should be had. It is that he needs to be accountable for his actions. He needs to apologize and he needs to educate himself and do his due diligence. And that's ultimately doesn't feel like a whole lot to ask. It doesn't feel like too much and it doesn't feel too extreme. Um, so I, I think that that is more than fair. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to lose my job over a mistake, um, but it's just that it has to be uh, accepted as a mistake and it has to be learned from or else who like how many people now are taking uh, taking his side which may or may not even be his actual side of the story and, and running with it saying that you know they agree or they they don't feel like any of this is actually happening or any of that so his comments saying that he's not trying to discredit they did they did discredit and people are jumping and taking it like that for or against. And so he needs to come out and address that. Um, I hope he does. Um, I wish Walker the absolute best. Um, I just hope that he is able to educate himself and and uh, come out with with a statement that reflects his educational journey and the due diligence that he has now taken um, before he's come out and to speak again. But. I uh, just wanted to give everybody one last opportunity to to say anything here, but we we want to wrap up this uh, this little segment here. I think you know uh, we've said really everything that needs to be said, uh, but you know just to everyone listening, don't remain silent on this or any other important social topic like this. Share your voice, and you know we'll shine a light on these subjects. 
And if you're not comfortable looking in the mirror yet, uh, at the very least, don't try to distract and take the, the light away from it and downplay things. Uh, these are important issues. These things are happening. Uh, they're still happening. And, you know, we will continue to fight for them on, on these people's behalf uh, until actual action has happened and we do away with just these empty words. Yeah, I mean, uh, the fact that people still say that people should in sports should just stick to sports and not use their platform is absolutely ridiculous. I think it's one of the like most ridiculous statements, especially when you have people as powerful as the president of the United States telling uh, people to stick to sports as well. When you have a platform, they should use it. And regardless of it does impact the sport, it impacts the people playing it and impacts the people watching it. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much, guys, for doing this. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. And we'll drop another one midweek here. From Sean Warren and the Area 51 podcast, thank you for listening. And please like, share, and follow along as we continue to grow. Join in the conversation on social media. We also now have new merchandise available on our own website. You can find it there on shop.spreadshirt.ca backslash area 51 hockey podcast, and you can grab some great merch. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Area 51 Hockey Podcast. Cheers.